0: So imagine with me, and some of you probably don't have to imagine this, you've done this, or you're doing this, or you're planning to do this, that you're planning a wedding, and this you might not have done, in an honor-shame society. We're not talking about a four to six hour wedding event, which is probably what most of you are used to, or you've been through, but something closer to probably a seven day event. That's Mostly what their weddings look like. Seven days, which you're like, that'd be really fun. And so on the third day, I was like, this is really long. <laughs> these parties likely put anything you've ever attended to shame. They're nothing. They'd laugh at you. Like, that's a party? We have seven days of that. So, so yeah, these, planning one of these is a tremendous duty and probably a pain if you're planning it. Assuring the guest list is figured out, you got to figure out lodging, you got to figure out travel, entertainments, let alone food and drink, because if you're really honest, what's probably the one thing to remember outside of the first kiss? It's probably the food and drink. You spent months, or probably closer to years, planning this. And the big week, because these are long, is here. There's a big problem, though. Way more people show up than you anticipated. I guess word got out and your guest list kind of grew itself organically without you knowing. You run out of food and drink the very first day. Like, this is a big problem. Not only, though, because you're in an honor-shame society, not only are you going to bring shame on yourself, you bring shame on the wedding party. Because you're not the one getting married. You're being shame on the bride and the groom. Because they're part of this. If you don't prepare, that looks bad on them. What should have been enjoyed, the wedding, is now forgotten. Because everyone looks at you as like, you messed up. Why didn't you plan well enough? And everyone is upset that their bellies are empty and their judgment is clear. They want to be drunk. You're now blamed for ruining this wedding. What should have been a joyous occasion is now ruined. And the stories the newly married couple will have to tell their their kids now have to be kind of dressed up. Like, everything was messed up, but let me tell you other good things that might have happened. In today's passage, that's precisely what happens in John 2. The, The faux pas, if you want to call it, like the worst of the worst in ancient Eastern culture, because that's what they do. Their wedding ceremonies are probably seven days long. I've heard of ones that are years. These are really long parties. This is probably the first day of the party. And yet, with an incredibly charged allusion to the very first wedding in the garden, and we'll see some of this, you hear the last Adam, the son of man from verse 51 (laughs) of chapter 1, Jesus Christ bringing the best to this wedding. He saves it. When they're just hoping not to have the worst, they get the best. And this wedding comes on the heels. We talked about the last two weeks of the creation of all things. That's John one one to eighteen, and then Jesus calling to himself his disciples. That's the end of John one, naming them as the Son of Man, as Adam names all those animals that come to him. We see a lot of allusions of this. We now hear of a wedding where this Son of Man promises abundance to those who believe in him. And if you read your Bible as well, if you read Genesis 2 well, this should remind you of something. And we'll see this in three points. We'll we'll build this in three points. The first is the need of this wedding. It's pretty appearance. They need wine. They need, like, we need to feel good. We We want to have a joyous occasion. And they asked Jesus, which is strange why they asked Jesus. And his mother asks him, which is also strange. That's not who you expect. You think the master's going to ask. But it's not the master, it's it's the mother. Point two is the joy in this wedding. And Jesus takes the stone jars for purification. We're going to see what that refers to. And he fills them, not just to the tip, but they're like overabundantly fills them up with water, turns into wine. And then point three, participating in this wedding. By faith, as the disciples believe, if you believe on this one, you're part of this wedding too. You enjoy this wedding feast with them. So I hope you hear this clear throughout the sermon. As Jesus has brought you into the abundance of his new creation realities, and he starts with the wedding. And we'll start with point two or point one. The need of this wedding, verses 1 through 5. All right. You may not have done this, but I did. If you're following the day markers, because whenever you read a gospel, if you ever read a novel, every single word counts. He's not just saying this day, that day, to just kind of throw away. It actually means something if you follow the day markers. So if you follow the day markers from verses 29, 35, and 43 of chapter 1, we're on the sixth day now. Because he says on the third day, in verse 1. You'll notice here in verse 1, on the third day. He's not just saying this is like, oh, we're on day whatever of the travel log. He's, he's alluding to something. We must be really careful readers of Scripture. We've got to catch everything. It's a, it's a lot, but you've got to catch everything. John does not say anything he doesn't have to. Again, under the inspiration of Scripture, he's building a story. He's building a, a, he's building a, a drama. Everything matters, including the days. Why on the third day? Following on the sequence, this is probably both an allusion to the third day being the resurrection, because this is written after Jesus' resurrection. So it's probably an allusion a little bit to resurrection. But also, I think more importantly, marks the sixth day. And this is highly significant for the wedding in John 2. If you read Genesis 1, what happens on the sixth day? Because he, as we know, Moses used the day markers for creation. What happens on the sixth day? Creation of man brought to woman. That's the sixth day. Who then are we introduced to in John 2? Again, this is right after verse 51. Sometimes chapter markers can be a little inconvenient when you're reading a novel. But the very previous verse to this is the Son of Man, who is the Daniel 7 Son of Man, is one who comes from heaven. And the mother of Jesus doesn't use her name. It doesn't use her name at all in the story. And that's significant. The mother of Jesus doesn't say Mary, because John's using this for a particular purpose. Even the place name here is significant. This is Cana of Galilee. And we're going to see why this is actually more important than just being a place name. Because it's the first, first miracle. Cana is, for lack of a better way, is the Hebrew way of saying read. Or Red Sea. Because Kana Suf is Red Sea. It's a Hebrew phrase of this. Which is the Red Sea. So something really profound is brewing. In verse 2, Jesus along with his disciples are called to the wedding feast. It doesn't seem like we know who calls them. It just says they're called. So they just, they come. And I'm sure it's probably by some family friend, probably somebody Mary knew, although we're not giving her name, somebody relation or friend. But because no one is named, it's, it's, you can kind of call it, they call it like a divine passive. It's not given to us specifically, so you can kind of assume he's just called over here by God, kind of secondarily, but that primary being one of his friends or family. And I'm sure most of you here would agree, but if you don't, I think especially those who are here, if you don't order or plan enough food or drink, not just so you satisfy the meal itself, but if every single person does have a tote bag of leftovers after the meal, you didn't plan enough. And they know this. Actually, they know this better than you because they have to plan for seven days. You usually plan for a few hours, which is hard enough. Seven days is like, that's a lot of food. And when Jesus' mother, whose name has not been given to us, I'm not going to use it because John doesn't use it. But when his mother comes and asks him, don't think she has the knowledge you do. So she's not asking him, hey, reveal yourself. Like, do this so you can reveal yourself. She probably thinks, like, he's going to go to the market, grab some wine. She doesn't know. I think sometimes we, we, we take the whole, which we should, and interpret the whole, but the characters don't know sometimes. The mother Jesus probably doesn't know. She's just asking him to get more wine. However, in verse 4, Jesus doesn't answer his mother how probably you kids would answer your mother, how you should answer your mother. Sure, how much do we need? That's not how Jesus answers. His mother is is unaware of what she's really asking. She has her question, but the Lord has a different answer. Because Jesus sure knows what's actually being asked of him. She doesn't know that she's asking him to reveal his glory, and Jesus says, I can't do that yet. Can't reveal the glory of the Son of Man. And just four verses earlier, verses, or verse 51 to chapter 1, that's precisely how Jesus described. His glory is revealed. He's like, I, I can't do this. According to the words of Daniel 7 and Genesis 28. We're, we're already told four verses before this who he is. And don't get caught up in his answer. I heard, I heard snickering, which it's, it's hard not to snicker when Jesus calls his mom, his mom not mom, which all of you kids never call your mom's name by her first name or by woman. Don't want to know what happens after that. But he says woman. Which I think in our modern context, like that's a big no-no. Do not call your mom woman. Actually, kids, what would happen if you called your mom woman? So your mom's like, hey, can you go grab, a, grab some napkins for dinner? Imagine if you're six-year-old. like, woman, ask your husband. <laughs> it's, just not what we, it's not what we think. It won't go well. So never, ever, ever do that. However, here, Jesus is probably evoking Adam's response to God. And we're thinking garden themes. How does Adam respond to God when he asks him, where are you? What have you done? What does he say? The woman you gave me, she's the one who handed the food to me. The woman you gave me. But here, when Jesus says, Woman, it's not my time, he's not defying her. He's not sinning against her. He's not sinning against God. He's obeying. Doing the exact opposite that Adam did with the same exact word. He's reversing it. Here, Jesus, who was the last Adam, the Son of Man, from 151, reverses the break, and the wedding vow is so prominent in Adam and Eve, because this is where Adam breaks it. It's like, God, I know you gave me the commandment, but I'm going to blame the woman that you brought to me. The woman over there, she's the one who handed me the fruit. He does the same thing for you. It's not just for Adam and Eve. He does the same thing for you. By calling out to his mother, when Jesus says, woman, he's fulfilling. He's not disobeying, He's fulfilling all righteousness. Not breaking it and bringing all of you into the arms. What Adam did into sin and death, Jesus brings you into righteousness. His calling out to his mother, woman, Unlike Adam and Eve, which is adultery, is breaking the wedding vows, is following after the serpent and not after their spouse. By Jesus calling out woman, he takes upon your failure. Takes upon your failure in marriage. Takes upon your failure at glances at another that's not your spouse. Takes upon your failure and your sinful thoughts. Or backbiting when the tension is thick during your last, your, your last heated arguments, or those that you wish you could take back. And this, is, this hits home for me. I think it hits home for a lot of us. Jesus, by using the same word that Adam did, blesses the marriage. He doesn't curse it. And a simple word, but so much blessing comes from it. So in verse 5, Jesus' mother turns to the servants... And she seems in some sense to get it. Or she's more like, just listen to whatever he says. He knows better than I do. It seems that Jesus is acting here. He's kind of acting here as the groom. Because who are the first two people you meet in this wedding? Not the groom and the bride. You meet Jesus and his mother. You don't actually ever meet the bride you meet the groom way later after this. So we want to follow the trajectory of the story. We hear these illusions, which brings us back to the wedding feast. He's acting here as the groom. He's the guy in charge. We hear illusions that bring us back to the garden, the first wedding of our parents, Adam and Eve. Again, who's, who's Eve described as in Genesis 4-1? the mother of all the living, which is another reason that John uses the mother of Jesus. He's, he's trying to build all these connections for us. If we read our, we read our Bibles really well, we'll catch these. But there's a really big problem. There's still no wine. He doesn't just like, here you go. I've created this wine out of nothing. Take it. Or I bought this wine. If you're like me, like, how do you celebrate... Wh- A wedding without wine. Like you wanna you wanna drink good you wanna drink good stuff when at your wedding. You wanna enjoy them. This brings this point too. Join this wedding. Verses six through ten. After Jesus' mother directs the servants to follow Jesus' direction, your attention is pulled to these empty and huge stone jars, twenty to thirty gallons. And nearly every appearance of these stone jars, it's kind of given you in John, in John 2, 6, and 7, they're used for purification. Either of those who can't enter without being purified, so if you want to think uh, lepers, those with diseases, those who are sick or in a mission, they can't enter the temple unless they're purified, and they use these stone jars. Or those who are perpetually, ritually clean so they can enter into the holy place and make these sacrifices for those who are ritually unclean or who have sinned against God's law. So the the stone jars work both ways. Which is interesting that Jesus goes to these. That's a temple thing. It's what they use in the temple. It's what they use to purify. So if you imagine being those people around Jesus, they're like, why is he walking over to these stone jars? That's for purifying. I asked him for wine. And he goes to the purification jars. And how many stones are there? Or stone jars are there? There's six. So six day, six stone jars. He starts building it more and more and more. As if John lobs up another clue to convince you, this is a creation theme. We're not just talking about a wedding. We're talking about new creation. We're talking about this thing that Jesus is coming to bring in. These are large, large stone jars. And again, if they're used for purification, where do you think you find these? They're so probably by the temple. They're probably either near the temple or he brings them from the temple. If you read the next story, we won't do this until next week, John 13, where does this occur? In the temple. So we're using a lot of temple themes and he doesn't even tell you where we're at until John 2, 13. But back here in verse 7... Jesus fills these jars. Again, without, we know the whole, but sometimes you want to read the story as it's written, without putting everything into it. Imagine being the servants, or those who are in this wedding feast, and they ask Jesus, they overhear him talking to Mary. He's like, oh, can you get us wine? And they like, okay, he's going to go over to the marketplace. But then he walks to the stone jars. Like, that would be odd. You ask your kid to go grab me some water, and they go walk the dog. This is, like, what are you doing? This is not what I asked you to do. Without the knowledge you already have, this would be odd. This would be really odd. Those who are watching him were likely wondering why he asked these stone jars to be filled. Are we, like, purifying ourselves? This is a wedding. This is strange. We really want wine. Is he readying to cleanse himself? Is he telling other people to cleanse him, themselves? It, it, it kind of seems like a, a priestly thing to do. You don't take these if you're not a priest. These are only for priests. And finally, in verse 8, the master of the feast appears. And you kind of ask, like, where were you the last seven verses? Shouldn't Mary be asking the master of the feast? He's the guy who's got the guest list. He's got all the food, the drink. He's the one who makes this thing happen. You would think the master of the feast had the burden of finding more wine. He probably was the one who you should talk to if you wanted more wine. He's the guy who made this. He's the guy who planned this. But Jesus calls the servants to draw some water out and bring it to the master. Again, that's odd. There's a lot of stuff if we don't impune the whole to this. Those in the story didn't know. We know, but those in the story don't know. Again, if you're in the shoes, your first thought is purification. That's what they're about to do. Cleansing or purification according to the Mosaic law. That's, that's all they know. If you look at the purification jars, that's the Mosaic law. There's nothing else they have in their mind. And it's also the, the, the tablet of stones is the same phrase used as the Ten Commandments. It's a witness for and against Israel when she sinned of her obligation to obey everything the Lord commands. That's, these are probably the things they're thinking right now. They're not thinking, the, the furthest possible thing in their mind is, Jesus is going to bring wine. That's why he's going to stone jars. They're thinking Mosaic law and purification. That's probably it. And yet in verse 9, what does the master taste? He tastes wine. He's probably like, "This is if there's anything I expected. This is the least thing I expected to see wine in purification jars." Can you imagine what he was thinking? The servants gather water from these jars for the purification of sins. Usually, they enter the Holy of Holies or pray for their sins be purified, themselves be purified. And when he puts his lips to the cup, he tastes wine he hadn't seen Jesus speak to the servants, he calls for the bridegroom. And Finally, we meet the bridegroom. But in verse 10, I think we've, we think we know the story until we read it slowly. Who does the master think gave this good wine to him? He thinks the bridegroom gave it to him. He doesn't tell Jesus, you were the one who brought the good wine. He tells the bridegroom, Why'd you bring the good wine? He misses Jesus completely. He thinks the bridegroom brought it. It's like, oh, you you did good. Thanks for bringing this to us. Almost like Jesus leaves the scene, and it's not the bridegroom. His admission here is everyone at the party has already had a really good time, because the word used here is one used for Moses when he's drunk, one used for Noah when he's drunk. They got really drunk. It's like usually you don't bring the bad wine out until everyone's drunk and you can't tell the difference. But you brought the best wine out after everyone's already drunk. You could say that Jesus imputed the better wine to the bridegroom. Because who messed up? The master of the feast and the bridegroom. That's where all the sin and the shame would have gone to. That's where everybody looked at them and was like, they are the ones who messed up. That's why we didn't have a good time. And then Jesus gives the good wine and the bridegroom gets the credit. Not Jesus. It's likely the bridegroom's fault that there's not enough wine because all the planning, wedding planning and ancient societies was probably all bridegroom and the massive feasts. It was very opposite of what we have today. Now it's a great thing that this wedding feast has wine, even fantastic wine. But the prophets of the Old Testament, they also prophesied that you'd see new creation when wine was flowing down on the hills, flowing down from the mountains. And what was the wine described, or was the water described as overflowing on the stone jars? And it's a wedding. They're looking forward to a wedding when the old wineskins would not be proper vessels for the new wine. Because these stone jars are like kind of the, the vivid image of the old. The vivid image of the thing that we can't do. The vivid image of the thing that you can't do. The vivid image of the thing that you have to do perpetually, continually, over and over to purify your sins, to enter into God's presence. He uses that to show them the wine. When a feast will break out among the people, and Isaiah has a bunch of imagery around this, and they'll be glad with wine and food. When good, because the law is not bad, just exposes bad, when good can't even hold the better. Good can't even hold the best. The stone jars represent the law, which was good, but the law can't bring righteousness that you so desperately need. They're then filled with the best. The feasting is finally joyous. They can finally enjoy it. They have enough wine. They have six stone jars worth of wine. They have 150 gallons or so of wine. It's a lot of wine. They can continue celebrating this oversight and underplanning of both the master of the feast and the bridegroom because Jesus has brought and is the better wine. And he gives all the credit to the bridegroom, who's a very dude who messed up. But this gets even better. This brings us to point three: participating in this wedding. The last two verses. As we read verse eleven, recall what I said about verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Remember, Cana is part of that Hebrew phrase for Red Sea. What they use in Hebrew to show the Red Sea, and here Jesus or John notifies you, "What sign is this?" The first sign it tells you this is the first sign he performed in Cana of Galilee, which manifested his glory. And John's very particular about what he says; he doesn't say anything he doesn't have to. But everything he says should pay attention to. It's not a glory many saw there, but a revealed glory nonetheless. Now this. This might stretch you, but hang on with me. This first sign occurring in the New Testament should remind you of something the Red Sea should bring to mind. Where does the Red Sea occur? Right after the Exodus. Water literally turning into something red is the first plague in Egypt. Egypt. That's the first plague or sign of Yahweh, again, through the hand of Moses. Because Moses takes a staff, puts it into the, or to, in the river, and it turns water into blood. And that he might free his people from bondage. He turns water in the river, the first plague, into blood. And this is not to bless. This is the curse. It's where they got their water from. They can't drink anymore. It's it's poisoned. It can't bless them. It's only to curse. Jesus here performs the sign, turning water into wine, not to curse as the first plague in Egypt, but to bless. He's reversing the curse. Reversing everything they knew, he's reversing it. That those at the feast do anything to be blessed, they failed to plan. It would have brought, like I said, it would have brought unending shame and dishonor on this family because the bridegroom and the master feast failed to plan properly. If anything, they failed to plan to properly prepare for the celebration, and he blesses them. The Son of Man, again yeah, from John one fifty one, the very Previous story comes to this wedding after he, after his participation in the creation of the world, and his naming of disciples, which is John one one through fifty one, and blesses a wedding. And like the plagues in Egypt, this manifests his glory because that's exactly why Yahweh performs these plagues. He's like, you want to look at me and me alone. Shows forth who he is. And Jesus identifying this is saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who brings this. I'm the one who performs these signs. Because that's a lot in a wedding. Jesus is showing all these things in a wedding. The disciples then do what Jesus or John describes as the entire point of the gospel. Because John 20 says, I'm telling you all these things. I'm giving you the very point of the gospel of John is so that you might believe in Jesus you can provide a thesis statement for John is that you might believe in Jesus. And so, in John 2, 11 and 12, they believed in him. Remember, those in Egypt who the first sign was performed didn't. Jesus, his mother, his brothers and disciples ventured to Capernaum before the next episode in the temple. You see, this this wedding is not principally about the power of Jesus although it is, or the joy that wine brings us, as it does, or believing in Jesus that he might make your water, the hard parts of your life, into wine, it's not the point of this story. This is principally about the glory of Jesus, who writes this wedding. I'm the son of man, I'm going to bless this wedding that was about to go wrong. It's the first wedding, of Genesis 2, when Adam sees Eve for the first time and breaks out into poetry. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This new man, the second or last Adam, comes upon a wedding and blesses it, literally filling their stone jars in abundance with wine. Literally filling the law. Literally, in a picture, fulfilling the law. The law being those stone jars, he's literally filling the law. Doesn't just say he does, but he actually does it. This law could cleanse, it can cleanse this law can cleanse or can't cleanse, it can only expose. The law came upon Egypt with this first plague and it and it cursed her. So I have a question. Are you found as a participant in the wedding, which is blessed? by Jesus' fulfillment of the law, overflowing with abundance of wine, is joy. If not, you've got to deal with the law. You've got to deal with continually filling the stone jars, continually going by the temple, continually looking to see if I can purify myself enough, if I can do enough, if I can work hard enough, continually attempting to purify yourself. That's what you have to do if you don't believe. You will keep working at it, just like they kept working on it. But you're powerless to purify yourself. You can't purify yourself. You can only further expose yourself. You will be found as that first plague in Egypt. You'll be found as those among the cursed. Under the first plague of Egypt, trying to drink from a stream which has been turned into blood. Can't drink from it. So I ask, believe as these disciples had in Jesus, that you might participate in this wedding. The gospel, which has fulfilled the law. As a picture of the great wedding supper of the Lamb, we see in the book of Revelation. This is a tiny little picture of that. Just as Jesus is called twice by John. He's called the Lamb of God who saves the world. He then comes to wedding in which you will be served by the master of the feast. You'll be served by the bridegroom of the feast, Jesus himself, who's not going to forget the wine. He'll bring it all to the wedding and receive this blessing in this new creation entered into through this wedding supper, because that's how it starts, is a supper. This is how Jesus' ministry starts. Right after the supper in John 2, he goes and cleanses the temple. And this new creation will flow like wine. And like Jesus brings, it will flow with the best wine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for correcting our faults, for bringing the fulfillment for what we could not have done. Lord, we only bring empty jars of obedience to your law that shows us that we have to perpetually cleanse ourselves We have to bring the best, and we don't. And you come in not to curse this wedding. You come in to save us from bringing guilt and shame upon ourselves because we have not prepared. And, Lord, you do everything for us in your son Jesus, and not just enough to get us into the front door, but overabundantly in our life, more than we could have ever asked for, to put joy in our hearts. We will answer your heavenly gates. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in your Son, Jesus. May all who hear this believe in your Son. Pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.